National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you join us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Last year, you may recall, and earlier this year, too, we did a number of shows covering the U.S. intelligence community. While this show today isn't strictly about one of the 18 members of the U.S. intelligence community, we will cover an aspect of intelligence, and one I think you're going to find truly fascinating. We'll also tap into our guest's deep knowledge of clandestine operations and covert action and see what he thinks about events around the world today. With us to discuss these topics is retired U.S. Army Colonel Chris Costa, who currently serves as the Executive Director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Colonel Chris Costa is the Executive Director and a 34-year veteran of the Department of Defense. Previously, he served 25 years in the United States Army working in counterintelligence, human intelligence, and with Special Operations Forces in Central America, Europe, and throughout the Middle East. He ran a wide range of intelligence and special operations in Panama, Bosnia, the First and Second Iraq Wars, and in Afghanistan. Costa earned two Bronze Stars for sensitive human intelligence work in Afghanistan alone. Later assigned to the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, he served as the first civilian squadron deputy director. In 2013, Costa was inducted into the United States Special Operations Commando Hall of Honor for lifetime service to U.S. Special Operations Forces. Most recently, he served as the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Counterterrorism at the National Security Council. Chris Costa, good morning and welcome to National Security This Week. Good morning to you, John, and thank you very much for for having me. It's a privilege and a pleasure. Are you sitting in your uh, office there at the, the Spy Museum? I am indeed in my office on the sixth floor in Washington, D.C. at the International Spy Museum. And right now it's a lovely day here in D.C. And the vista from my office is pretty impressive, actually. Not, not too hot, not too humid out there in D.C. right now? Not yet, but it's it'll be humid <laughs> by the end of the day. Okay. Uh, Chris, there are many, many topics I want to cover with you today. So if we could, uh, let's go ahead and get uh, get after it. Uh, first, I want to uh, give our, our audience a little opportunity to learn more about you and your career. You served in military intelligence in the U.S. Army for your career. What drew you into the intelligence field and why that career field? What was it about military intelligence that fascinated you enough to make a career out of it? I appreciate the question. So as a boy, I was a bit of a dreamer. I wanted to be a Marine or a soldier or a spy uh, or what I construed a spy would be. Um, I was fascinated with the idea of service to the nation. I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my dad first, who was a military officer, uh, spent his time as a young Marine lieutenant uh, before he got out of the Marine Corps. And then another triggering event happened in 1972. I watched the Munich Olympics live, a a terrorism hostage-taking scenario play out. Some 900 million people across the globe watched a terrorism incident play out live that day uh, in Munich, Germany. And I remember there was a a sense of um, purpose in my young mind that someday I wanted to somehow be on the right side of justice as I saw it. And the right side of justice was... uh, 
you know, being in a position to counter threats, even as a 10 year old boy, as I date myself again, 1972, I really wanted to serve in the nation. And I was animated by the idea of intelligence work based on some of the books that I had read. So those were the beginnings. But my first priority was to get a commission, join the army and uh, try to be an intelligence officer and take it from there. What was it a did you go right into Intel uh when you joined the army when you're commissioned or or did you transition over from another branch? No, that's uh that's a lesson for the the young listeners that might be hearing me about perseverance and and sticking to your plan, right? Uh when others have a different plan for you. So, it was 1984 and about 70 of my classmates at Norwich University, a great military college in central Vermont, we were all commissioned May 19th, 1984, and most of us were sent into the combat arms. I acknowledged that. I reconciled that. I knew I'd have to become an airborne ranger because what else are you going to do if you're an infantryman? But my grand plan of, of being an intelligence officer through my lens wasn't to be initially, but the seed was planted, as I said, as a young man, I was a dreamer and I wanted to get, uh, you know, what I wanted someday, somehow. So I never took my eye off the ball and I wanted to be an intelligence officer. But first and foremost, I had to be, you know, the best infantry officer I could be. So I went to infantry officer basic course. I went to ranger school, as I said, and I showed up at the vaunted 101st Airborne Division. But as a brand new second lieutenant, you know, with a high and tight in uh, 1985 at this point. So that's how my career started, not on the path that I wanted, but it turned out to be a great start for me in actuality. Uh, now, your career specialization was in human intelligence or, or human, as we call it. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have uh, two directors of the Defense Intelligence Agency on the show, Lieutenant General Bob Ashley and uh, current director, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. Uh, they've both been on the show, and they've, they have uh, openly discussed this world of defense human, and it have been fascinating discussions. Uh, what drew you to the human field specifically? Why that specialty area? So this goes back to the 101st again and my interest in reading books out of context because I was a young kid when I was reading the books. So I didn't fully appreciate all of the context in the books. But what I liked was the idea of being an officer. In fact, my analogy that I've been playing with of late is I was drawn to it just like I was drawn to the sport of wrestling in high school. I love the idea of being on a team, right? Mm. Uh, you appreciate that, being on a team, the nation's team, you know, if you're in the Army or you're in special operations. But yet, when you're wrestling or when you're a human officer, it's just you. It's just you and your asset you're, you're dealing with, your source that you're developing, and nobody can help you while you're out there. You might hear people cheering you on. You might have been prepped before you went out there on the mat. But at the end of the day, it's just you and that individual. And when I was in the 101st as a young infantryman, still thinking about being an intelligence officer, I remember one day there were a bunch of donkeys of all things. Yes, the four-legged <laughs> animals that were getting ready to be flown 
on C-5 Galaxy aircraft from the 101st while I was getting ready to do yet another emergency deployment exercise, exercise between the wars. And I asked somebody, hey, where are those donkeys going? And they said Afghanistan. And I remember thinking, that's where I want to be, right? You know, be careful what you ask for. I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. But the idea of clandestine or covert work really appealed to me even then as a young lieutenant. Um, so I know Bob Ashley very well. He's a very dear friend of mine, and I very much appreciate that you've had Bob on the show. We both served in special mission units, but we clearly had very different paths. Bob appreciates you meant as being the director of DIA, and he, he certainly loved the spy museum and came over here multiple times. I just talked to him recently. But at the end of the day, we had very, very di different career paths. Uh, I'm going to ask you a quick follow-up question, if I could. Uh, sure. You've, you've, you've highlighted, uh, you know, your focus on leadership, the importance of leadership. Uh, in this role as a case officer, that one-on-one -on -one you have with, uh, you know, the asset you're developing, how important is having those leadership skills in dealing with human intelligence and, and uh, giving a recruited asset the courage to do these incredibly difficult missions on behalf of the United States? Well, John, I appreciate the question. I know you know, and you could answer this question equal to me, but I will tell you that recently I talked to a good friend of mine who's a legendary uh, CIA officer, Greg Vogel, and Greg and I were at a reception together and we were talking, um, and we both agreed that we got all of our tools as young lieutenants, him a Marine, me an infantry officer. We received our tools that helped us as case officers when we were learning how to lead a rifle platoon. We handled every imaginable problem as a young 25, 26-year-old something We've tried to uh, sort through people issues as platoon leaders. That leadership, if you don't lose that foundation, if you don't forget where you came from, that becomes a powerful force multiplier when you're sitting with a source. So I would argue my upbringing uh, as well, my values, but importantly, also what I learned about being a young leader that translated to taking care of the sources that I had to keep alive, but I also had to take care of their family. I also had to provide security. So I think that ethos really begins um, the first time you're exposed as a young leader. Now, you don't have to be an Army officer to be a clandestine case officer. You could pick up some of what I've talked about by being an athlete or, be, or being a coach of a team. But I think you understand the point, and I really appreciate the question, but I think I was well set up, or set up well, I should say, differently uh, to become a case officer, and I didn't even know it. So, Chris Costa, you, your career was kind of unique. You spent a, a good deal of time aligned with the world of the Special Operations Forces, or, or SOF. Uh, as a heads-up for our listeners, in mid-July, we'll have the former commander of U.S. Special Operations Command, General Joseph Votel, on the show to talk a bit about uh, Special Operations Forces in detail. Uh, Chris, what could you tell us about the unique relationship between intelligence and Special Operations Forces? And, and clearly that relationship between human and, and soft uh, operators uh, is a key, especially in counterterrorism, counterproliferation operations. 
John, thanks for that question. Before I answer that, I'm going to digress for just a second, if I can, <laughs> sure. and just offer that uh, I'm really excited that you're going to have the opportunity to interview General Votel, because of all the leaders that I ever served under, General Votel, I hold him in the highest regard. He's one of just a handful of officers that I would follow anywhere, and uh I'm very grateful for have having the opportunity to serve under General Votel. So I think your your folks are in for a big treat. I will tell you, he also sat down with me when I came out of the White House, and the humility that he demonstrated to sit with a formal former subordinate and listen to me provide perspectives from my perch at the White House was extraordinary. The idea of being self-effacing, humility, all of that is embodied by, by General Votel. So um, anyway, I, I wanted to offer that. And to your question more directly, I mean, I loved serving in special operations because there was a symbiosis, if you will. There was a cooperative relationship between in, in unprecedented in terms of the relationship between special operations, special operators, and intelligence. Intelligence drives operations. Operations drives intelligence. Soft operators understand that. And the best operations I went on were with special operators. And uh, the best operators I worked with demonstrated humility. And when people say, well, Chris, what was it like being um, – as an example, you know, being a retired Army colonel working with SEALs, you must have been the brunt of jokes and <laughs> it must have been relentless uh, hammering. Yeah, of course there were. We have to operate in that space, right? But at the same time, it was uh, it was done with mutual respect. But here's what I tell people, and this is the key point. It was It was the idea that I didn't want to be a Navy SEAL in this circumstance. And they didn't want to be human case officers. So we came together to satisfy our missions in a synergistic way. So that is a, a long-winded way of saying special operate, operations really gave me everything that I wanted about being a part of a team. Yeah, and they, they, they treat you like an adult from day one, and they expect you to be a, a professional, a consummate professional and knowledgeable and skilled in your career field area, whatever it might be. I, I really enjoyed my four years at the U.S. Special Operations Command. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army Colonel Chris Costa, who's currently serving as the Executive Director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., we're discussing the museum, U.S. intelligence, and global affairs. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Kirk, Colonel Chris Costa, I'd like to return to discussing world affairs with you shortly, but for the next segment, I want to touch on your current personal leadership duties. You're serving as the executive director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. What is the International Spy Museum? Hey, thanks, John. So I'm excited to say that the Spy Museum does missions similar to what you're executing, right? Educating the public. Um, the Spy Museum, though, is an independent nonprofit museum, and everyone knows what a museum 
is certainly, but it documents tradecraft history and really the contemporary role of espionage. We contextualize, and this is really important, we contextualize current events because we have the stories, we have the artifacts, over 7,000 artifacts in our holdings. Only 1,000 are really displayed uh, for the public at, at one time, right? We have the largest collection of espionage artifacts in the world that's on public display. Uh, and we're right here in the heart of espionage and counter-espionage here in uh, the amazing capital for the United States, Washington, uh, D.C. And at the same time, we're the International Spy Museum because we want to ensure we tell universal stories of espionage. It's not just about U.S. intelligence community, quite the contrary. But we do that through our exhibitions, our programming, our adult programs, our youth programs, our access programs. We just want to engage critically and ensure that the public is able to engage critically with the world that, that's around them. And I think we do a phenomenal job, if I can say so myself, given the feedback that we receive. So that's a quick thumbnail sketch of the Spy Museum. And I should say with all humility, six years ago, I knew very little about museums. So I have gone to school on this place and hopefully I'm doing okay. They've kept me here. There's a lot to that uh, being a curator of uh, of hist historical artifacts, uh, for sure. Can you give us kind of a sense of uh, sort of what's on the events calendar at the Spy Museum uh, upcoming, International Spy Museum? Just give a, a re our listeners a sense of how busy you guys are. Wow. Um, without going to my website, which is www.spymuseum.org, I'm going to just uh, extemporaneously figure out what we've got going on. We have... Spy Camp coming up, which is a youth program, I think, in July. Um, we have a spy chat coming up at the end of the month. And a spy chat is where I, the only program really I do routinely, and that is I find a luminary much like you, John. Again, not, what's not saying that I'm a luminary, but you find <laughs> luminaries like General Votel and you bring them onto your show. What I do is find luminaries in the intelligence community and we dig into current events. It's contemporaneous which w with what is happening in the real world. Um, but we're, we're going to do spy chat once a month, uh, I think, in July. Well, I know we have an ambassador coming in, Roger Carstens, to talk about... Um, hostage taking and the hostage enterprise and how to resolve hostage cases like uh, like the young Wall Street Journal that is being held by Russia. So that's just an example, really small example. We have ongoing podcasts that are digging deep into historical um, issues related to uh, terrorism, related to intelligence. Our historian uh, has an incredibly popular uh podcast program we call spy cast so i'm not doing justice to the amount of programs we have it's really eye-watering and you can go and look at the calendar we'll have events through the weekend our private events offering our world-class space um i'll be on the rooftop at an event here on july 4th that uh um uh, the government of Qatar will 
will uh, host a 4th of July party on our rooftop. I'm lucky enough to be invited, even though <laughs> that's not always assured, John. Yeah. But anyway, that just gives you a flavor. We're always busy. Uh, I'm hosting uh, some of our foreign partners here in the next couple of weeks. I ensure that some of my former intelligence colleagues are linked to the spy museum. We want to be a convener, uh, an unofficial convener for the community to really uh, help us educate the public. Uh, so, Chris, I'm going to ask you to sort of talk uh, definitions very quickly. Uh, being a spy and being a case officer are two totally different things. Uh, could you clarify for our listeners the difference between the two? Yeah, I love that question, and I always clarify that. Uh, just last night, in fact, I spoke to a group, and the way I couched it was this. I will occasionally say, hey, have you ever met a former spy to a bunch of little kids? They get all excited. But then I always have a responsibility to define what that means. That's a euphemism. It's a label. We all say we were spooks or spies. That vernacular has been around for many, many years. And yet, definitionally, we know in the business, you know this, John, from the business that you were in, that in fact, the spy is actually the foreigner that's taking all the risks. He's the agent. He's the source. He's the asset that is recruited by somebody like me, meaning a case officer, an operations officer, an IO, an intelligence officer, an intel guy. However you frame it, the case officer is the individual responsible for spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting, running, providing security, being the father, the confessor, um, anything you can think of, sometimes being a medical technician, but you are responsible for a human source. And that is the difference between a case officer and a spy. But I want to make the point, it's the spy that has the hands in the safe. It's the spy that's taking the risk. It's the spy that is trusting me or people like me and putting their life literally in our hands for the, no, in my view, the noble purpose of supporting the United States, mm -hmm. providing intelligence that may help their respective nation uh, fight a war. It may keep them safe, but they're taking risks by ensuring that U.S. policymakers and commanders are are uh, receiving intelligence, ground truth. And it is an entire process that is responsible for this. So it's not just the case officer. And that's the other point I want to make. It It truly does take a vast community. But at the end of the day, for me, it was all about being on a wrestling mat. Uh, and it wasn't until I served at the White House that I completely and fully appreciated the, the, the power of this community called the IC, the intelligence community, that we were a part of. Uh, so you mentioned the International Spy Museum as you know being the title. Uh, you want to tell the stories from around the world. Uh, let me make this a two-part question. Uh, why specifically focus so heavily on the international side of it? And number two, can you give us maybe one or two of your favorite uh, collections and a little story behind what's what's resident there at the museum? Yeah, absolutely, John. So I think uh, we want to be compelling as a nonprofit. We want to be 
nonpartisan. We want to ensure we tell the stories of the intelligence community, both good and bad, which means anything from interrogation and a subcomponent of that is addressing enhanced interrogation in our museum. Do that factually without emotion. Mm -hmm. Talk about cause celebs, flaps, failures. If you go to a museum, arguably at DIA or CIA, and I've been to both museums, they're fabulous. Intelligence services aren't fond of telling stories of their biggest failures. <laughs> yeah. we, we will not shy away from those stories. So that's another reason to tell international stories, the universality and the challenges of intelligence services globally. For example, we tell a French story, which is a bit of an embarrassment for France, the idea of sinking the, a green peace ship, a yeah. peaceful ship in a harbor, Auckland Harbor. In the 1980s, I believe, Operation Satnique was the French name for it. I mean, it was an embarrassing and a failed covert action. And the French got their hands caught in a cookie jar. Yeah. So we tell that story. But we also tell the story of the Bay of Pigs, which famously was an abysmal United States failure. We counterbalance that with another story of Operation Cyclone arming the Mujahideen in the 1970s and 80s. You know, from Charlie Wilson's war, we tell the stories with fabulous artifacts, but we want to tell stories from across the world. I mean, my favorite story, John, on the business that I was involved in is when you have a Palestinian who is a source by the name of Mossab that was uh, – the son of the found one of the founders of Hamas, who was recruited by an Israeli Shin Bet officer by the name of Gonan. So rather than me telling a young man or a young woman or anybody really about the business I was in, I can show them that film or they can see it at the spy museum and they can start to see what's at stake in this business of human intelligence. What is at stake personally? professionally, the manipulation, the trust that's required, but with a little m, manipulation, the, the fear, the adrenaline, all of that is conveyed in a foreign story. And that's just one of many of our stories. I mean, my favorite artifacts, um, you didn't ask me that, but I assume that's one yep, of the- absolutely. One of the questions you were going to ask me. I mean, we have the ice axe. Think about this. The ice axe that killed- Trotsky in 1940. Um, H. Keith Melton, our benefactor for ensuring that we have, I think, something like 7,000 artifacts from his personal collection that he donated to the museum. And one of those was the ice axe. This program isn't long enough to tell the story how he acquired the ice axe. <laughs> Legally, I will argue, but or I will make the point, but at the same time, it's it reads like a spy novel to ensure the that the story was correct and and uh, that the ice axe uh, wasn't a you know a, a fabricated uh, fraud. And all of that required a lot of due diligence on the part of not just Keith but later the museum. So that's one of my favorite stories. Uh, in our covert action gallery, we have a video called. Uh, uh, a film, Real Spies, Real Stories. And I love that because now you have intelligence officers telling their favorite spy stories. It, from, you know, some of these individuals are foreign actors, you know, and I tell one of my stories that um, my mother heard for the first time when she came to the spy <laughs> museum. Uh, I don't give away any state secrets, but I think it's a powerful 
um, story of how we do the business that we do. In that particular case, it turned out to be had a good outcome, but not all of our stories, as you know, uh, turn out well. Yeah. Uh, Chris Costa, we're going to have to take just a short uh, break, commercial break, to recognize our sponsor. We'll be back in about 45 seconds. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here at National Security This Week, and our guest is Colonel Chris Costa, and we're talking about uh, the International Spy Museum, and we're going to about to jump into some current affairs topics. Uh, so, Colonel Chris Costa, because of the position you are in at the International Spy Museum, serving as executive director, uh, and by the way, thank you for the last 15 minutes, uh, that second segment of our show, telling us all about the Spy Museum. I have actually never been, but if I, the next time I make it out to Washington, D.C., I am definitely going to visit. But based on your position at the Spy Museum, uh, your extensive background in the U.S. intelligence community and supporting special operations forces, I, I suspect you find it very difficult, just like I do, to just turn it off when it comes to paying attention to world affairs. It's just sort of in our blood, I guess, uh, guys like us. I, I've noted you've penned a few articles in various outlets providing your thoughts on some of the things that are happening around the world these days. Uh, what areas of the world do you think uh, the American uh, American press is sort of failing to cover as much as may be deserved? Uh, areas that are, from your perspective, important, important to American national security interests with consequential happenings, but few Americans really know about what's happening in those parts of the world. Yeah, John, you, you, you nailed it when you said it. it's uh, it's a bit of an obsession. You didn't use that <laughs> word, but we are you know, committed to really staying on top of the world around us. We were trained uh, to do so. So, you know, I do that by reading three newspapers every morning. I'm always preparing for our next spy chat and always trying to make the connections to our museum holdings. So um, to answer your question directly, I think the American public, uh, and they shouldn't need to understand the nuance. It's up to people like us to provide um, you know, the uh, the finer point to some of the stories, to provide the context, to provide the color. It's up to us to educate the public on the nuance. But I'm really paying close attention to really three or four areas. First of all, this idea of great power competition and trying to talk to our audiences about what that means in terms of intelligence. For example, um, you know, China is using the war with uh, Ukraine to really test the United States metal. Um, so when you talk to some people, and I have in my office, active duty general officers uh, privately here at the Spy Museum, if you can believe it, and we uh, we concurred not too long ago while we were pontificating around the world that Ukraine is very much about uh, China right now. Uh, in some ways, we are being tested. Now, the Ukrainians wouldn't view that uh, through that lens, right? It's about survival. It's it's um, it's it's a dangerous environment for Ukraine. But at the same time, China is testing us. Iran is testing us. And I think those are stories that are underplayed. Um, additionally, I want to make the point 
back to my world as a counterterrorism professional that the threat just because we're not talking about jihadists, just because we're not talking about al-Qaeda and ISIS like we were, that threat has not gone gone away. And in point of fact, the threat dynamic is greater rather than lesser in terms, more dangerous rather than less right now, because now we have to collectively globally really we have to worry about things like white supremacism uh, turning into political violence we have to talk uh, be concerned with anti-government violence in terms of uh, of uh, groups organizing to undermine governments not only here but in places like germany and europe um so terrorism has not gone away and i think of course, the elephant in the room is the very notion of unintended consequences of the war in Ukraine and the possibility for Luke, I'm sorry, loose nuclear weapons, something we've worried about in places like Pakistan. But now we have to worry about um, Russia itself and their long-term stability or the use of tactical nuclear weapons. So who would have thought that in 2023, we would be having these kinds of discussions. And I guess I would be remiss if I didn't offer the other, the other news piece that I track continuously is the idea of hostage taking. Whereas when I was in the Trump administration, I was very much zeroed in on hostages held by terrorists. Now, John, the trajectory is about states rolling up journalists and calling them spies in places like Myanmar, in places like Russia, in places like China. So there's a a new trajectory that we are on, and those are the areas that I'm deeply concerned with, not to mention polarization and weaponizing social media and artificial intelligence. So just a few things that keep me up at night still. <laughs> I, I know I know the feeling. You, you touched on a couple of places that I'd like to follow up with uh, if sure. I could. Uh, so you mentioned Myanmar. Uh, the military junta there, uh, they are strongly backed uh, by China and by Russia. Uh, do you see that situation as sort of almost like a kind of a proxy situation where the Russians and the Chinese are, are having have a strategic they're gaining strategically by sponsoring a military junta and the US maybe is not and our allies frankly are maybe not doing enough uh, to address the fact that the military junta is carrying out uh, such atrocities against uh, villages all across the country so in short yes and that's a insightful question Um, There's a lot of different ways to answer it. I would just say that I am not an expert on Myanmar necessarily, but the idea of surrogate warfare, that's one of the articles that you alluded to that I I penned back in March. Uh, The idea of surrogates and proxies is very much a part of the fabric now of military strategy for countries like uh, Russia right now using the Wagner Group, um, China taking advantage of proxies. Iran has been doing it for decades. Proxy warfare has been with us since antiquity, but at the same time, it is really, really um, being exploited by bad actors like um, China, like Russia. In Myanmar is no different. They're being exploited, make no mistake. They're being exploited by China, just like Cambodia 
arguably is being exploited. China is, is uh, you know, this is reported in open source media. You know, China's uh, uh, may be building a base in Cambodia. Um, they have a policy, General McMaster used to talk about, of coercion uh, and co-option. So China is using proxies, but it's also exploitive. It's uh, And be careful what you ask for, countries that uh, entertain China, because Ultimately, they will leave you high and dry. And I think those are some of the lessons that uh, we need to take away from past proxy conflicts. So, yeah, proxy warfare is now a part, very much a part of uh, strategy of these countries. Uh, two other places I'd like to ask you about, just to share your thoughts, if you could. Uh, the Balkans. Uh, I, I don't know if you spent any time on the ground in the Balkans uh, after 1996. Uh, I I was uh, fortunate enough, I guess, to have an opportunity to serve some time uh, in there uh, running operations. Uh, Do you think the Russians are partly at work here trying to create uh, strife between the Kosovo Albanians and the Serbians uh, over this recognition of of Kosovo? Uh, And is that to Russia's strategic advantage to light a fire in NATO's front yard to take the eye off the ball of what we're doing to support Ukraine? In short, yes. And I spent a lot of time in the Balkan theater of operations in the late 1990s, in Bosnia in particular. I've spent uh, time in Albania. Um, I even had an opportunity, and this doesn't happen every day, in my role at the Spy Museum, I had a private dinner with, with, uh, with one of the key leaders in Albania, and we talk about some of these issues. Um, I think it is in Russia's interest to stir the pot with their brother, in quotes, Slavs. And I think that's exactly what is is going to happen. Uh, Serbs have learned that they can stoke, um, you know, stoke emotions uh, in the Balkans to take the you know, the population eyes off other problems like, you know, their economic challenges. And I think it's very logical that countries um, like Serbia will take advantage of uh, the situation in Kosovo. And I worry about Albania someday, although it's very stable and it's a great partner. It's it's I think General Mattis said there. I think he said this about the Emirates as well. Little Sparta, countries like Albania punch uh, above their weight. So doesn't the Emirates. But um, I think they're extremely vulnerable to the geopolitics of what's happening in Europe right now. And then another trend, uh, the Wagner Group and the operations that they are running across uh, the African continent. Uh, In many ways, they they frame it as counterterrorism, but really... It appears to me, anyway, that they're really just propping up some of these uh, somewhat corrupt or out, outright uh, corrupt uh, autocratic regimes uh, in Africa. Are, are you seeing the same thing from your position there? Yeah, from my position, absolutely. That's exactly what they're doing. They're first of all, they're proxies. They violate. You know, they they don't uh, follow the you know the law, international laws of 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 warfare and the principles that the United States adheres to, both legally and and uh, also from a value standpoint. And at the end of the day, they are proxies for Russia. Now, Russia is now seeing that you know that yeah, the 
it's coming back. The blowback of using proxies is very much in the forefront, certainly for uh, Putin right now. He's been bit, you know, by proxies in the case of the Wagner group. Um, but they are behaving like proxies. They're operating in places like Mali. They're operating outside of international norms. And I want to make the point from another article I wrote, and that has to do with the idea that great power competition is too important to look at counterintelligence through a narrow lens. In other words, we have to view counterintelligence as an important tool to counter learn some of the lessons from counterintelligence that we learned during the Cold War. We have to take some of those principles and apply it to organizations like the Wagner Group. They're not traditional intelligence organizations, on the contrary. But intelligence officers are linked to those groups, and we have to disrupt those operations. And I don't mean kinetically. Uh, but we've learned those lesson, lessons, not just in the counterterrorism fight, but the counterintelligence fight during the Cold War. In short, it's an awful lot to digest and, and, and think about, but you have smart listeners. At the end of the day, we need to take all of those lessons and harness them to counterbalance these operations that are happening worldwide um, with groups like the Wagner Group and Chinese intelligence officers, and Russian intelligence officers, and Iranian intelligence officers. And the last point, they're operating in our space here in the United States. They're doing pre-operational preparation, the Iranians, to conduct a kidnapping of a dissident in New York City. The FBI's prosecuted that case, investigated prosecuting. They've rolled up three or four people. Um, the Russians consider killing Americans here in the United States. I'm sorry, uh, defectors here in the United States. That was just <laughs> reported. Um, the Chinese are going after their dissidents, not just globally, but here in the United States. And there's another trial that uh, individuals were found guilty for doing that. So it is a complicated, you know, hybridized world that we're dealing with. So this world that you have lived most of your career in, this uh, this nexus between intelligence operations, especially human and uh, and the special operations world, uh, you also served as a civilian on, as a as a national counterterrorism advisor to the president and with Navy SEALs at the, the Naval Special Warfare Development Group. What does the average American citizen know about America's special operations forces? You know where they're deployed, how, how they how vital they are for not only collecting intelligence uh, to support national security decision-making, but but also some of the more sensitive operations that take place out there. I, I, obviously, we can't go into the classified stuff, but what I mean, what can you tell the average listener, uh, the average American citizen today, about uh, the amazing work that's being done in that special operations world? Well, I can talk about the first week or so when I was at the White House at the National Security Council and uh, the first crisis we dealt with on top of two or three other ones that I'll, I'll allude to or I'll, I'll talk a little bit more directly about in a moment. Uh, we lost a SEAL operator, and his name was Ryan Owens. We lost him in the first um, couple weeks of the administration. It was, it was a terrible loss. Any loss is, is, uh, is profound when we lose a serviceman overseas. Ryan Owens was killed uh, by conducting a raid against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, terrorist organization in Yemen. 
that uh, uh, threatened the United States. And during uh, during the raid, Ryan was killed. Ironically, I knew Ryan. I didn't know it was Ryan who was killed when I was called at three o'clock in the morning and I went into the White House to try to assess the situation. But what's important to note is we have ongoing special operations across the globe. We have a global footprint, small footprint of special forces and special operators worldwide. And that's an important part of our arsenal. But I also want to underscore the personal impact uh, to decision-making, national security decision-making in particular. It has a face. And I learned that in week one. Um, I knew that, but, you know, it hit me hard and, and I just redoubled my focus to execute with humility and consider and ensure my team understood that every decision that we recommended to the president or I personally decided on, depending on what level the decision was made, as it related to counterterrorism, every one of those decisions considered the human factors. So special operations uh, is a necessary tool for all of the things that I talked about, uh, you know, to include great power competition, to include complementing uh, and executing counterterrorism work globally with our uh, incredible intelligence community. So it was an important part of the tools in, you know, in our, you know, kit box, so to speak. And I had one more vignette. Do, do we have time for yeah, it, We, we do, absolutely, yep. I mean, the other thing we say, and I didn't quite believe it, I had to see it, touch it when I was at the White House. We talked about the idea that policy can drive operations. So a story I can't talk a lot about in detail is – underscores that point. And it had to do with an individual by the name of Mustafa al-Imam. And he was one of the um, individuals that happened to be on the Benghazi compound when our ambassador and other Americans were tragically killed. Um, and some actionable intelligence was developed um, that, uh, you know, that Mustafa al-Imam was in a place that the United States could ensure that he was brought back to justice here in the United States. And uh, we had lots of things going on. That was not a top priority to ensure that this justice uh, occurred. It wasn't a top priority from a policy standpoint in light of the pervasive threats that we had, John. But as soon as my team, uh, as soon as I got wind of the idea that there was actionable intelligence, we truly drove operations from my team. Um, we didn't have to, but we understood the import of justice in ensuring Imam ultimately went to trial and went to jail, which he did. We drove that operation from the White House. And this was an adjunct to so many other things we were doing. And I use the personal pronoun, but this was about a whole team. The whole United States government for a short period of time pivoted on this one operation, along with everything else we were doing. And uh, Imam's now serving some 20 years in prison. That was justice. And that goes back to 1972 Munich. Somehow as a kid, I wanted to, to see justice done. And now I can proudly say that in that particular case, our community ensured that justice was done. Yeah, I remember from my time uh, assigned at Special Operations Command, in, on any given day, 
we have U.S. Special Operations Forces, whether they be Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, Marine Corps, deployed to around 70 to 80 countries around the world working collaboratively, mostly in training with uh, other countries' militaries, sort of I- I- imbuing in them the sense of uh, civilian government control over the military, the rule of law, uh, and then the professionalism of the uh, of the armed forces and service to one's nation. That's uh, a really important role that uh, that special operations plays, not only in nation building uh, and partner building, uh, but you know, building that trust that we have that we have to have in the international world to, ahead of a crisis. Uh, I, probably much like you, I'm a little concerned that uh, from a budgetary perspective right now, there, there's a lot of discussion about uh, reducing the size of the U.S. Special Operations Forces uh, that, that we have. I'm going to go into more of that with uh, with General Votel when he's on the show next month. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to NASA Theory this week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army Colonel Chris Costa, who serves as the Executive Director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Colonel Chris Costa, we only have about 10 minutes left. This show flies by so fast, I'm just amazed every 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 week. Uh, I'd like to close out this segment, uh, this last segment, by talking about some of the, the bigger strategic challenges. You've touched a little bit on it. Uh, from my perspective, uh, at least with regard to national security threats facing uh, facing our country from other nations, I would say the activities by China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea uh, pose the most serious challenges uh, for our country. From your perch at the International Spy Museum, uh, how should we think about these strategic challenges today, especially in light of the myriad espionage artifacts and stories at your fingertips at the museum dating back into America's last trying period during the Cold War and containment of Soviet communism. What what lessons should we take from that time frame uh, in the challenges, the strategic challenges we face today? Oh, great question. I think the biggest lesson is we can operate aggressively to counterbalance our threats. And we have been successful at, at preventing the unintended consequences that we worried about during the Cold War. For example, general war or or a nuclear confrontation. We got close on many occasions, but we also were bold. We had a generation that was prepared for these kinds of challenges. And I want to make the point that our generation is the current generation. The future leaders are no less uh, prepared. They will they will meet the challenges. We're a great nation. We knock ourselves. Others knock us more than they should. We're self-critical and uh, we're brutal to each other at times. And we have a polarized society. But every generation believes that the next generation is incapable of doing <laughs> what they did. And I am here to tell you, I heard about that in 2000, then in 2001 from my colleagues and peers, that the generation, the next generation wasn't up to the task of counterterrorism and look at all the fighting that that those young Americans and our foreign partners did uh, hand in glove with the United States. So I think we have to remember those lessons. And as I said earlier, harness those lessons, but also understand the rule of unintended consequences. We have to leverage our intelligence intelligence community to make sure we're asking the right questions so our policymakers don't push in ways that are dangerous to the United States, to our foreign partners, to our interests and our own security. Is this a time where uh, political leadership, both in uh, 
in the White House and across the executive branch and also uh, in Congress where it would be really helpful to have a, a lot more people who were truly knowledgeable on uh, international relations, uh, national security affairs. Uh, do we need more people like that elected to, uh, to Congress as an example? Well, certainly it doesn't hurt I, to have people that are conditioned the way we were conditioned. But at the same time, I believe that anyone with the right orientation and the level of integrity and values can serve the nation. Is, you know, And I'm thinking altruistically, right? It's about legislating the right laws to serve constituencies. It is my least favorite branch of government, to to be sure. Uh, you know the legislate, you know legislative uh, branch and and Congress. And at the same time, when I've engaged with congressmen and Cong- uh, also congresswomen, when I've talked to them about not just about the spy museum, but these important issues, they're always interested and engaged. I very much appreciate that. So if there's a willingness to learn, I think it's important, almost equal to to having that experience. Do you have a lot of policymakers that make visits over to the International Spy Museum to talk about this uh, this world of international espionage and the importance of, uh, of having a strong uh, cap- capability to collect intelligence to support the policymaking process? Yes, they're either at events here hosted by private organizations and by virtue of that, they see the museum, they give us feedback, uh, they come over from time to time, that we've even received feedback on some of our exhibits from Congress, um, from a senator in particular in her office. Uh, so, yeah, and they love the museum, I, and uh, we very much appreciate that they go to our events when we sponsor events as well. Um, I've had talks with, uh, informal talks with um, with congressional staff on evenings uh, and offered my insights. And I very much appreciate, you know, the opportunity to share my perspectives, not right or wrong, just my perspectives. Uh, So we're down to just uh, about four minutes or so remaining in the show today. Colonel Chris Costa, uh, my guests always get the final word. Uh, What thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners uh, regarding the International Spy Museum uh, or professionals in the intelligence community or special operations community or issues, uh, challenges that America faces around the world today. And, and sir, the floor is yours. Well, first of all, John, as I said at the outset, I very much appreciate what you do with this show. It is critical to educate the public. That is our core mission at the Spy Museum, to do so on national security issues, espionage issues. Um, but I also was remiss at probably not accentuating enough that Any success the museum enjoys is because, like the rest of my career, I've been fortunate to be surrounded by incredible professionals and and teammates. And I served in Tier 1 organizations, the best organizations on this planet in terms of intelligence officers as well as special operators. And to go from that environment and then to serve at the White House and to show up at a museum and be surrounded by a different kind of tier one uh, team member, right? But t- tier one nonetheless, meaning world class. So once again, I am blessed and fortunate to be surrounded by great people that are passionate about the business that we do. And we take this very important. Um, 
as a very important mission and a touchstone to ensure that we educate the public in a thoughtful way and that we help on the idea of getting the population to think more critically about the world around them, to be better consumers of the news, of information, to question. So I really appreciate that my entire career has aligned in very special ways at the Spy Museum, and I'm really grateful. It's a privilege to be able to do that, to continue to give back. And I joke oftentimes, where do you put a former spy in quotes, right? You put them in a museum. But I say that in a self-deprecating way, but truly it is a gift to be able to continue to educate the public and to do so in such an amazing, amazing place as Washington, D.C., and at the International Spy Museum. And, John, you better come visit me because I'm going to hold I will. I will do that. I will do that. I'm actually thinking about coming out to D.C. in uh, late August for a uh, uh, retirement ceremony for my friend Mike Studeman, who's the uh, current uh, commander at uh, Office of Naval Intelligence. Uh, unfortunately, that's uh, going to bring our show uh, to a close. Uh, Colonel Chris Costa, could you please remind our listeners one more time of the the website address for their National Spy Museum? The website is www w.spymuseum.org. I think I said three W's, yep, right? Yep, yep. And where are you guys located in D.C. specifically? Oh, we may have lost his signal. Unfortunately, folks, I think we may have lost uh, Colonel Costa's uh, signal here on Zoom. Uh, that'll have to do it for today. Our guest today was Colonel Chris Costa, who serves as the executive director of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., That'll close this week's uh, edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. when our guest will be the Chief Master Sergeant of the United States Air Force, uh, the Air Force's senior enlisted advisor uh, to both the Secretary of the Air Force and uh, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, uh, Joanne Bass is her name. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.